Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Richard, did you ever have to really change your mind about something? I mean... Really admit that something you've believed for a long time just isn't so. Yeah, I've done it a bunch of times, partially because I spent so much time living in Britain. So I've lived overseas. And it's not just what I think about things. It's actually my identity changed. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's happened a bunch of times. So that's kind of what this podcast is about. I mean, when we started it, the idea was to help us and help our listeners confront ideas that challenge some of our ingrained beliefs. And that's something I hope this episode will do. Work versus college, Orrin Cass. A model where you just get economic growth and and trust that everyone's going to benefit leaves something out. You actually need to make sure everyone's included in creating that growth. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? For more than 50 years, our society has held up college, and especially four-year college, as the best path for success. And we've tried to make college available to everyone. Nonetheless, the cost of graduating from a four-year college has doubled over the last 30 years. It's over $100,000 today. And in many cases, much more. Total college debt has risen to a staggering $1.5 trillion. And to put that into perspective, Jim, when we started doing How Do We Fix It, I remember it was right around $1 trillion, and now it's $1.5, so it's gone up 50% in, in less than four years. At the same time, barely half of recent college graduates are working at a job that requires a college degree. And what about all the people who don't go to college or, or who never graduate? Don't they matter? Our guest today says our society has got it all wrong. We've pushed college and downgraded the importance of work. And the consequences are disastrous. Our guest is Oren Cass. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of the new book, The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Oren joins us via Skype from Western Massachusetts. And welcome to How Do We Fix It? Well, thank you so much for having me. You say America has abandoned the American worker. What do you mean? I think we've become obsessed with with consumerism and measuring everything in terms of consumers and living standards. And and consuming stuff is great, but but in the process we've forgotten that producing stuff is important too. And, and it's not just about stuff and numbers and data, is it? It's also about meaning. 
That's right. I mean, why do we care about work? There are so many dimensions of it. There's for individuals, for their own life satisfaction, their mental health, uh, certainly their economic opportunity. But then also, you know, work is critical to family formation. When men don't have work, divorce skyrockets. And, and work is incredibly important for kids and outcomes for kids are better when, uh, when, when their parents are working, when they're just living in communities where more people are working. And so on all these different dimensions, I think we, we have to recognize that uh, a model where you just get economic growth and, and trust that everyone's going to benefit leaves something out. You actually need to make sure everyone's included in creating that growth. We, we do have a, a pretty low unemployment rate as of this recording. It's officially at 4%. But that being said, uh, unemployment only measures those people who are seeking work. A lot of people simply dropped out of the workforce in recent years. That's right. There are really two things that are important to understand about our current moment. One is there are a tremendous number of people who are just out of the workforce entirely. We're close to 20% of prime age men, so men between uh, 25 and 54 who aren't working full time half a century ago, that that was less than 5%. Uh, and, and then the other thing to recognize is that we're at the top of a cyclical boom. You know, it's a tight labor market. But but the important thing then is to compare that to past booms. And, and on, on unemployment, we're not necessarily doing better than past booms. Wage growth isn't as good as past booms. Labor force participation isn't as good as past booms. And by the standards of before the Great Recession, this moment that seems incredible right now, it, it, would, it would almost look like the depth of a recession. You talked about the number of men who are not working nearly as much as in the past. There's also the number of women who are in the workforce also peaked in, in a previous generation, right? Yes, that's true. You've written, America's lower class, for lack of a better term, is undergoing an unprecedented social collapse that threatens to destabilize core American principles. Explain. Things that we take for granted in this country and, and that seem to work are, are actually built on pillars, things like stable, healthy families, things like uh, vibrant communities. And you take those things for granted when everything's going fine, but they're not necessarily self-replicating. And, and what we've seen is that Actually, they're degrading really seriously, and the existence and stability of two-parent families, which are so critical to outcomes for, for children, uh, has become a real problem. And as those things go away, they, they become that much harder to recreate. You know, when, once they're gone, you don't just sort of ask them to come back. And so I think it's really important to ask, what makes the things we like about society sustainable? One thing that is very counterintuitive in your book is your critique of what you call the college for all pipeline. What's wrong with that pipeline? Well, I think it's a great thing that we try to offer everybody that opportunity. Uh, the problem is that right now we don't have anything else. And most people don't succeed in completing college. Most Americans still don't earn even a community college degree. And so while you can look at our education system and, and it looks good at each moment, you know, most people graduate from high school, most high school graduates go to college, most people who go to college finish college, most people who finish college get a job that requires a degree. That all sounds great, but the reality is that 
most people actually fell out along the way there. Only about 20% actually go high school to college career successfully. And yet we don't really have an alternative. And yet our technology is changing very rapidly. Artificial intelligence, for instance, likely to knock a lot of factory workers or at least unskilled workers in the food services industry and and other occupations out of work. So is one of the answers more widespread training opportunities as opposed to insisting that the goal is that everyone should go to college and get a degree? Well, I think that's exactly right. You know, the alternative to college isn't just, well, nothing. The alternative has to be connecting young people to the workforce while they're still in high school, getting them some real skills, maybe subsidizing their job initially so the employer wants to have them there and and is investing in them as well, Um, and, and getting somebody to age 20 with some actual job experience, an industry credential, some earnings in the bank. Um, That's a perfectly achievable thing to to focus on if if we actually want to. You had a line in the book that I really liked. You said, if we adopt a college or bust attitude, we shouldn't be surprised to find a workforce consisting primarily of college graduates and busts. So is our college for all pipeline, all that emphasis and investment in that life track, is it making income inequality worse? You know, I don't think it's that the investment in the college track makes income inequality worse as much as the failure to offer anything else. There's been a collapse in labor unions. Isn't it true that the decline in unions is part of the problem here? Well, I do think it could be part of the problem, but but I think we have to recognize that, you know, a, a system we designed in 1935 probably isn't the right one. Uh, But on the other hand, that in theory, the idea of organized labor is a really important one, that this doesn't have to be a Democrat against Republican issue when we're talking about the idea that workers should be able to organize uh, and and they should be able to negotiate and collaborate with employers in ways that make them better off uh, and and hopefully make the, the employer better off, too. I think the biggest problem with unions is we designed them as something to just take from the employer. No one ever said, well, the employer will also benefit from this. And so, of course, employers fought it. But you could have a system that actually was was something that both sides wanted. Oren, you were an advisor to um, presidential candidate Mitt Romney. Uh, you've worked with a conservative or libertarian think tank. So you come from the right side, <laughs> not necessarily right versus wrong, but, but right, right side of the political spectrum. But your book challenges a lot of traditional conservative economics. I was kind of surprised to read The Once and Future Worker and find that you had as much of a beef with conservatives in many cases as you do with, with liberals. And and you've mentioned this concept of, of consumption a number of times. Could you, could you elaborate more? Well, certainly liberals haven't cornered the market on being wrong. I, I, I think we... Uh... <laughs> We should recognize that, G- that Jim, gets Jim is cheering you at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, I think ide- ultimately I think ideas matter. And, and tracing the kind of lineage of the ideas that have motivated our agendas, both what the left and right have fought over and what they've agreed on, 
you know, shows us things that maybe made sense but don't make sense anymore or, or things that were just missteps. And, and so something I emphasize when I'm, I'm talking about the right of center is, is that that phrase you just used of sort of conservative economics is actually a misnomer. Uh, what we call conservative economics is almost entirely libertarian. Um, the fundamentalist approach to, to free markets uh, really as an end unto themselves is, is what we associate with the GOP and what we therefore call conservative. But, but actual conservatism, though it, it's allied in many cases with libertarianism, um, should think about these things a different way. Actual conservatism should be focused on, you know, what we were talking about a, a little bit earlier, those institutions of our society that are so crucial to flourishing. Uh, and, and, and we think markets are a great way to facilitate that a lot of the time, but they're not an end unto themselves. And I think something we've seen happen in recent years is we've been encountering situations where free markets aren't necessarily delivering the outcomes we want, especially in, in the labor market for people as workers. They're delivering growth, maybe, but they're not giving us the labor market result we want. And, and when that happens, I think libertarians and conservatives really have to part ways a little bit. And the libertarian response is to say, well, if that's what the market does, then that's great. Uh, and I think the conservative view has to be, no, actually, it's not. We need to look at why the market is behaving this way. And if it's producing outcomes that we don't think are good for society in the long run, then we have to ask what we can do about it. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Oren Cass, and we're going to move on next to solutions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's talk about solutions because you have some pretty bold ones. But let's start with your biggest. You say the federal government should subsidize low-wage jobs. That's a, that's a big concept. How would that work? Well, technically, we, we do a little bit of it today. We have what's called the earned income tax credit. Uh, and low-income households, when they file their taxes, and especially if they have kids – uh, can get back a really big credit, you know, upwards of $5,000 in some cases, even if they haven't paid any taxes. And and that's intended to try to make that low-wage work that they've done more remunerative and to get more resources to them at the end of the day. But there are a lot of things wrong with doing it that way as a big lump sum check once a year. And it really doesn't reach a lot of folks without kids and, and younger people starting out. And so I think what we need to do is essentially think of it as the opposite of a payroll tax. I mean, when you get your paycheck, it's got that FICA line for the money that we took out. And we need to put a line under that 
that says work credit if you're earning a low wage, less than $15 an hour, and especially if you're down at 8 or $10 an hour, we should put a significant amount in and, and boost that up so that it's more attractive for you to take the job. It also actually becomes more attractive for the employer to create and offer that kind of job. And then also you, you, do have, you do have more to bring home to your family at the end of the day. Why not just tell employers, as most Democratic presidential candidates are now advocating, you got to pay your workers a better wage. You got to have $15 an hour minimum as the national minimum wage. This wage subsidy idea lines up nicely next to the minimum wage idea, because what you see is they're talking about, in a sense, the same thing. How do we make those paychecks higher for low-wage workers. And then the question is, who should put the money in? Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you say, well, the minimum wage should be $15 an hour, technically it's, it, it's free to propose that. It doesn't show up in the federal budget anywhere. But somebody's still putting that extra money in the paycheck. You, you might think it's the big corporation, as they say, but a lot of times it's a small business owner, it's a franchisee. And so I think, first of all, that's just not the right source of the money. Well, most of the subsidy probably goes to the worker is the first thing to say. So it's an interesting economic question, how much of the benefit goes to the worker versus the employer. And I think the important thing to recognize about some of the benefit going into the employer is that the reason the benefit goes to the employer is because you have more people coming into the workforce. So if you imagine kind of in you know econ 101 terms, when you draw your supply and demand curves and see where they intersect and so forth. Anything that you do that brings more less skilled workers into the workforce is going to benefit the employers that that employ less skilled workers. So to complain, well, we don't want to benefit a Walmart or a McDonald's, uh, I think is a little bit silly. I mean, any you pick your your preferred ideal policy that's going to get folks off the sidelines and coming into the workforce, and that's going to benefit Walmart and McDonald's, too. Um, so, so I think instead of asking who benefits, we should be asking, you know, what we're trying to accomplish, which is more people coming into the workforce, earning more money, more jobs being available for them. And if we're able to do that, if there are policies that will help us do that, I think that's worth celebrating. Where would the money come from? Well, I would, I would like to, to use the money we already have in our safety net. You know, we spend more than a trillion dollars a year transferring resources to low-income households. And with the exception of that earned income tax credit that I mentioned, virtually none of it pays any attention to work or rewards work. In fact, most of it penalizes work because support gets taken away if you start working uh, or start earning more. And so I think saying most of our safety net is still going to be a, a true safety net of health care and food stamps and so forth for folks who can't support themselves but if we took 20% of that, so about $200 billion a year, and said, actually, part of this is going to be about promoting work and helping support people who are working, we could fund it that way. And, uh, and I think we'd have a much better safety net and, and approach to helping low-income households than what we have today. You're also a big fan of getting kids to work sooner, um, summer and weekend jobs. Um, how would that work? Well, the thing about getting kids working is it turns out that actually being in the workforce, uh, learning how to have a job is, is in a sense a skill in itself. Uh, you know, the, the so-called skills gap that, that everyone likes to talk about, people assume it means like we need more people who can program robots. 
But but when you actually talk to employers who, who are lamenting the skills gap, what I've found is they're talking about people who can show up on time every day and understand that having a job means being there from nine to five. And uh, a lot of times the folks that I've been talking about just now who, who otherwise might not have much exposure to the world of work. And if we end up also subsidizing some kids from high income households who otherwise wouldn't have taken a summer job and now they do, frankly, I'm okay with that too. I think getting more socioeconomic diversity and, and kids from all backgrounds working again is is going to be good for our society in the long run. You say that our emphasis on trying to get everybody into college is well-intentioned, but it reflects wishful thinking, and we should recognize it. It's just not going to work for most people. And instead, we need to revive vocational education in our high schools and community colleges. Yeah, how would that work? Well, we can look at what the rest of the world does, for one thing. I mean, the, the rest of the world thinks we're crazy, frankly, with our, our attempt to get everyone to go to college. Uh, and, and there's a wonderful study that the OECD, uh, the organization of all the developed economies, did a few years back. Their first big chart shows what share of the students in, in high school in each country uh, are on a college track versus a vocational track. In almost every country, it's 40 to 70 percent on a vocational track. Then there's a little footnote at the bottom that says the U.S. has been excluded from the chart because our system is too different. Now, actually, if you tried to put it on the chart, it would be like one or two percent. I mean, we just we do not offer pathways into the workforce modes of education besides trying to go through college. And what it does look like is uh, you have you have more concentrated time at the start of your high school years focused on the core academics. And then you try to use those junior and senior years of high school, some on standard academics, some on more concrete skills that you're learning in the classroom that are relevant to a job, uh, and then some of the time actually in the workplace. Uh, and you can get people to age 20 with, with years of job experience and industry credential and so forth. Uh, and and then let's not forget they can go back to college later. Yeah, you know, and if- and, and, the, and it's not just it's not just college or employers who could be involved in training. There are other organizations as well. Uh, for instance, in your chapter, More Perfect Union, you talk about how unions or labor cooperatives could be much more involved in improving their members' skills. That's right. And, and that's something you see in the building trades, especially today. The building trades, because these things are absent elsewhere in the system, um, through their unions, have taken on a pretty aggressive role and, and spend you know, upwards of a billion dollars a year on, on training programs to help bring people in, get them some real skills and, and get them into jobs. And so, again, that's a great example of what organized labor could do that that we're missing when when we don't have organizations for workers that's a group that could be heavily engaged in in investing in the next generation of workers you've talked about how a college degree is kind of the badge of success in our society has stripped status away from non-college jobs or blue-collar jobs is there a way to bring some of that back I think we can. I think the best example of it is, I don't know if you remember, there was an, an incident a few months ago where um, uh, a former actor from the Cosby show was was seen bagging groceries at Trader Joe's and, and some tabloid tried to push around photos of it to embarrass him. And, and there was this huge immediate backlash of, 
against job shaming. And, and all of these actors in Hollywood and other folks were expressing their outrage that, that you would dare sort of say there's anything wrong with, you know, this guy who's doing good, honest work and, and supporting his family. And I mean, unlike with so many of our culture war battles, I think when you actually sit down and ask people about this, everybody agrees and, and feels the same way and, and would like to convey that kind of respect to those jobs. I, I think it's just something we haven't focused on or, or realized is important. And so I wanted to go say to all those actors who were who were tweeting their support, you know, go go take a look at the shows you're on. Where's the Emmy winning sitcom about the guy who bags groceries at Trader Joe's? Yeah, that, if, that, that's why, a really important point. That? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting uh, very interesting part of this is the, is the way that work is depicted in our culture um, by mass media and 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 other other aspects. And and you have you have sort of a, a bubble problem where the people who produce the mass media and the writers and and so on and so forth are all. Um, coming out of this same pipeline and, and mostly see other people coming through it. And, and so they, they recreate that to some extent. The, the, um, you know, the, not, the pipeline meaning four years of college. Yes. Yeah, that's right. The, the, and, you know, living in a coastal city and, and spending your twenties in a certain way and, and so on and so forth. I mean, I always, I think another fascinating one is commencement addresses. You know, the, there's the famous Steve jobs commencement address where he sort of analogizes, um, you know, a good job to a lover and, and telling all the graduates to sort of think about it in those terms. And it's like, well, first of all, I'm pretty sure Steve Jobs you know, dream in life wasn't to be a, you know, tech executive. In fact, I, I believe he he ended up there through a rather circuitous route. Um, but more importantly, that's just not the right answer for most people. I mean, people who find a job they love and their passion happens to align with with something they can make a living doing. That's fine, but but that's never going to be the norm, uh, and and that's not necessarily especially well correlated with with having a, a good life. And uh, we we I think we have to all in our own lives try to help people understand that, and then I think we have to bring that attention to to, to the attention of of the culture makers. I mean, whatever your issue is, whether it's you know gun control or or gay rights or climate change or pick whatever it is, you know, it's not as if the the media were, were the leaders who went out and decided these things were important. There, there were activists who said, please make this a focus. Uh, and, and I think work and, and these things we're talking about here are at least as important as those topics and, and need to be elevated in the same way. Orin Cass, thank you so much for joining us. I, I like the way you ended that on a fairly liberal note, Orin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've just, yeah, as, well, there are plenty of conservatives, <laughs> activists out there, too. We just have to, uh, someone's got to get Hollywood to listen, I suppose. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. It was good to talk to you. And coming up, our conversation, I'm going to put Jim in the hot seat. So, Jim, you've just written this piece for the New York Times magazine about work, the future of work. What did you learn from that that surprised you? I traveled to a place in uh, eastern Mississippi called the Golden Triangle. It's one of the regions we discussed with James Fallows on our podcast with him about the book that he wrote with his wife, Deborah, uh, about the revival of of small towns and, and, and cities across America. And the key thing that really struck me was 
these people are really proud of their jobs. This is an area that was on its way down. Meatpacking plant closed. Textile factories closed. It was low income and low education to begin with. But they've got this thriving community college there. Kids in high school start getting their hands in different trades and trying out different kinds of work. And guess what? While they're doing their internships, they're getting paid $15 an hour. Um, so, and how, how old are these kids? Oh, I'm talking, you know, as young as a junior in high school. And then, then through the, the, the two-year community degree is called an associate's degree. And that's your typical kind of community college degree. Usually it involves some kind of certification in a technical field. It might be something in the medical field. Uh, yeah, so, so what kind of jobs? Well, so this is an area where they manage to attract all these manufacturers. They've got a, a high-tech modern steel mill, tire factory, diesel engine factory, and then this really high-tech stuff, a uh, 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 a branch of Boeing that builds unmanned aerial vehicles and a, a branch of Airbus that builds helicopters. So they're taking people who literally lost their job making hot dogs and teaching them to make carbon fiber helicopter parts. So having a job is more important than how much money you make. More money helps people be happier. But you can make another $10,000, and it makes you a little bit happier. But you can have the same income with a job or without. The person who has that income without a job, their life is just a laundry list of, of pathologies. These are the people much more likely to get divorced, commit suicide, develop an opioid addiction. If we're going to subsidize something, let's subsidize helping people work, and especially in good jobs, and give them that chance to move up into higher uh, skill levels. So – I guess the bottom line is the cultural shift we were looking for is to emphasize the importance of work and not just certain kinds of work. It's not just because having people work is good for our society, but our civilization also needs good people in these jobs. Think about your day. Did you drive a car? Did you drive on a highway? Did you go over a bridge? Did you, did you turn on the shower, flush a toilet, turn on an electric light? We need skilled workers doing, keeping all those systems running, uh, you know, the power grid and everything else. Our society would collapse without skilled, dedicated people in those jobs. And yet, we've built an education system that tries to ensure, that defines success as making sure that none of our kids wind up in any of those jobs. That's nuts. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Music by Lou Stravinsky. And How Do We Fix It? is a production of Davies Content. We make other podcasts, too. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Maybe we can help you if you want to make a podcast. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org.
Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.